All right, so we're going to continue this evening our series on good news for homeschoolers from the book of Ephesians. And this evening we get practical as we get into the second half of the book of Ephesians, particularly chapter 5. That's where Paul takes all the wonderful, heady theology that he's been espousing and he applies it to families. Tomorrow night and Friday night, Dr. Rob Renau will be speaking. So tonight and Saturday night, we're going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. As Paul turns his attention to relationships between husbands and wives. Now, if you are married and you're homeschooling, then you know that the foundation and the bedrock to the success of your efforts to raise and educate your kids is a healthy and supportive relationship with your spouse. My wife, Ann, participates in a lot of online homeschooling forums. And there she comes across so many couples with strained and with broken relationships. And the stress that that puts on trying to raise and educate kids is heartbreaking. So what sort of good news does Paul have for husbands and wives? What difference does all the amazing saving work that God has done for us through Jesus Christ, what difference does it make for our marriage and for our families? Well, let's find out. Tonight, we're going to focus on how this good news applies to being a husband. And then Saturday night, we'll apply it to wives. That way, if things don't go well tonight, the ladies have three days to decide if they want to stick around. And if you're not married, uh, stick around anyway, because you may find that God has something to say to you through his word. So let's begin with this text, Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. If you're able, will you please stand as we again open God's word tonight? Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Maybe see that. God, thank you for getting hold of the Apostle Paul by your Holy Spirit and inspiring him to write these words for families, for husbands and wives, to teach us 
how to live out the good news behind closed doors. In Jesus' name, amen. The story is told of the Persian emperor Cyrus, who once captured a prince and his family. And when the captives came before Cyrus, the great monarch asked the prince, what will you give me if I release you? And the prince replied, half of my wealth. And if I release your children, Cyrus asked. And the prince said, everything I possess. And if I release your wife? And the prince replied, your majesty, I will give myself. And Cyrus was so moved by the young man's devotion that he freed them all. Well, as they returned home after that close scrape with disaster, the prince said to his wife, wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? And with a deep look of love for her husband, she replied, I didn't notice. All I could see was you. You were willing to give your life for me. Husbands, in today's passage, we learn that this is the way we're to live for our wives every day. Now, I realize that this topic of male-female roles in relationships is a hot-button topic today. Maybe I'm crazy to even open this passage in a group of people that I don't know so well, but I'm crazy, so here we go. And because this text is such a battleground and there are so many strong feelings connected with this topic, we're going to have to work very carefully through this passage. And I want to start by reminding us of two fundamental rules of interpreting any passage of Scripture. If you've ever had a Sunday school class or you've read a book on how to study the Bible, then you may have come across these rules. The the first rule is that you have to be careful not to read your own assumptions and experiences into God's Word. We've got to let Scripture speak on its own terms. And the second rule is that we can't understand what a passage means for us today until we've first understood what it meant to the people for whom it was originally written. In other words, we can't understand what today's passage says about male and female roles in the 21st century until we've first understood what it said about those roles to those living in Ephesus in the first century, those to whom Paul originally wrote this letter. Are you with me? Okay. So let's start off by getting a picture of what married life was like in Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote. It was quite different than from today. So to help us understand, let me introduce to you a fictitious, typical Ephesian woman named Lucia. Lucia lives in her husband's large house in Ephesus along with their children and several other relatives. They also live with a number of slaves and her husband's business partners and a few apprentices. That was typical of housing at that time. In the Roman Empire. And Lucia and her husband, like most people back then, had a a trade, a cottage industry. In this case, let's say they were master weavers. And so they oversee the production and the sale of textiles in their busy home. While their family has its private quarters in the back of the home, their home, especially up front near the street, is a public place. It's bustling with commerce and gossip and news from around the city and the empire. And ever since their home was transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, Lucia and her husband have hosted a small house church 
We're following and worshiping Christ as a community with a few nearby neighbors who've come to Christ as well and who've joined them in their house. Now, Jesus' coming into the life, into their lives has changed Lucia's life as a woman a great deal. But let's talk about what Lucia's life might have been like before Christ. Demosthenes, the Greek orator, described what Lucia's life would have been like when he said of free men, we have courtesans, that is, mistresses and prostitutes, for the sake of pleasure. We have female slaves for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all the household affairs. In other words, Lucia used to have to share her husband's attention with their slave girls and with mistresses paid and unpaid. No wonder Socrates was reported to have said that there were three blessings for which he was grateful to fortune. That I was born a human being and not one of the brutes. That I was born a man and not a woman. And thirdly, that I was born a Greek and not a barbarian. Further, Lucia was seldom permitted to leave the home lest she get raped or seduced out there where it was a man's world. Like most other women at the time, Lucia married as a teenager. Her husband, who was around 30, more more than likely, when they married, took over raising Lucia right where her parents left off. Her husband, of course, had almost complete authority over her and her life. Lucia had few real rights or protections under the law. Her husband had the right to determine her household responsibilities, what education and information she had access to, when she could come and go, what religion she was allowed to follow, and who she might associate with, who her friends would be. And very likely, had Lucia's husband not come to Christ, she would have been divorced and remarried multiple times. Divorce was a given in Ephesus. It was hard for women to divorce their husbands, but a husband might divorce his wife anytime he wished. Seneca, the Roman philosopher and playwright, once said, women are married to be divorced and divorced to be married. In fact, divorce and marriage were so common, historians tell us, that a lot of women dated the years by the names of their husbands. So that gives you somewhat of an idea of what women's lives were like in Ephesus in Paul's day. Now, large households like the one I described were the primary building block of Roman society. They were the key, and the, uh, the key to the stability of the Roman Empire. And so Greco-Roman society developed what are called household codes. These codes set out and reinforced the duties and the responsibilities which society expected of those in the household. What it expected of husbands and wives, what it expected of masters and slaves, what it expected of fathers and children to keep households solid and at peace. And that, in a sense, is what we have in Ephesians 5, 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. We have a household code for followers of Jesus. But to set this code in context, let's listen to a couple excerpts from other household codes around in Paul's day. Here's a quote from the code that Aristotle developed in his politics. For it is a part of the household science to rule over wife and children, 
For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female. And here's a quote from the philosopher Philo's code from his Hypothetica. A woman is inferior to her husband in all things. Let her therefore be obedient to him, for God has given the authority to the husband. So that's the world the Ephesians lived in as they came to Christ and as they tried to follow Christ faithfully in their culture. And Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians to encourage them, to instruct them, and to remind them who they were and how they were to live as God's people in that culture. How to be good news in the Ephesian culture, faithfully following God. As we've seen over the past couple nights in Ephesians 2, Paul reminded the Ephesians of the grand reality that God is in control of the world and of where history is headed. And that God has installed His Son, Jesus Christ, on the throne of the universe. And that Jesus is in the process of bringing peace and unity to the whole universe, mending and bringing together all of the fractured, frayed, discordant strands of the world and reconciling the world in relationship to God. Paul also reminded the Ephesians that as God's people, God had placed them right in the center of this work that Jesus is doing. So that they, and so that we, get to experience the good news. And also to share and to be the good news in the world. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul begins telling us how we're to live in light of this. We saw last night that we're, we're to live in unity, uh, humbly loving one another despite our differences. The redemption and the healing of the whole universe must find expression, first of all, in, in the relationships, in our relationships as God's people. We're the witness, we're the sign, we're the foretaste of what God is one day going to do for the whole world when He sums up all things and unifies everything under Christ. But right now, it's ours to show the coming of that great reality in the church, in the way we live, and especially in our marriages and our families, which may be the most difficult place of all to live this out. Marriage in Paul's day was so utterly ruined and corrupted compared to what God wanted it to be. And that's still painfully true today. So that's one reason that Paul takes the time and space to elaborate here in great detail through a household code as to what lives will look like in a household that's being transformed by Jesus Christ. Transformed by the good news. And when we read Paul's household code against the backdrop of Paul's day, folks, this code is absolutely revolutionary. You have to understand, as we saw, household codes in Paul's day were all written from the man's point of view. They lectured the man's wife and his children and his slaves on, the, on their duties, what their duties were, and, and on the obedience that they owed to the man. If, if these other codes, like the ones we looked at from Aristotle and uh, Philo, if they addressed the man of the house at all, it was just to encourage him to rule over his family because he was superior to them. But here in Paul's code, 
He does the unheard of. He speaks to these authoritarian household heads, these men who had complete control over their households, who lived in a man's world, and who had been used to enjoying all the the privileges thereof, power and control and promiscuity and status. And Paul commands these men to love their wives. To love them. And then Paul does something even more radical. He devotes three times more space in his household code to addressing the man's responsibility toward his wife than her responsibility toward him. Paul drums into these patriarchal Ephesian husbands how now that they follow, now that they follow Christ, they need to love their wives with a tender, affectionate, delightful, sacrificial love. And folks, you can be sure that this was absolutely earth shattering in Paul's day. And to some extent, it still is today. And so here's the point of the whole passage. When the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ gets hold of a family, husbands begin to love their wives until it hurts. What? Husband sacrifice? No way! That was radical in Paul's day. And unfortunately, it's still far too radical today, even among Christians. Well, in Paul's day, his teaching on marriage shook the Roman household to its very core. It it caused the tectonic plates of, of basic existence to shift so that life could never be the same again for God's people. As Christ stepped in and began renovating the household, bringing his kingdom and his rule, a new creation into existence. Husbands, if Christ is going to be present by his spirit in your home, then get ready because a lot of things are going to have to change. Hopefully they've already begun changing. But what exactly is going to change? How do we bring Paul's instructions to the Ephesians so long ago up to date for us today? After all, our culture is very different from that of the the Ephesians. We live in an age where radical feminism has shaped the culture and the national conversation. We live in an age where it's politically incorrect to be a man sometimes. And male bashing is an accepted national pastime. It's up there with baseball and apple pie. In our day, men are no longer sure what it means to be a man. A third of boys don't grow up with their father to teach them. And as John Eldridge helpfully pointed out in his popular men's book, Wild at Heart, men today have few great battles to fight, few adventures to take, and few chances to rescue a princess. And so we're caught between um, macho images of maleness on the one hand and and sensitive, caring images on the other. And and so we men may feel like we don't know how to be men or husbands. And like, no matter what we do, someone's bound to say it's wrong. So what does it mean to be a man today, especially in the context of a relationship with a woman? Well, Paul's household code can't provide us with a complete answer because he wasn't addressing our situation today, but he does point us to the heart of the matter which transcends time and culture. 
It's the same message for us men today as it was back then in Paul's day. And that is that we begin to be men when, like Jesus, the ultimate man's man, we love others and the women in our lives in particular until it hurts. That takes courage. That's a man. Several years ago, when I was pastoring a church uh, near Vancouver, Canada, my wife Ann and I were on a retreat with our church's college and career group. And we were doing a Q&A panel on sex and dating and relationships. And we were doing it together with one of our church elders and his wife. And one of the young people asked us a question about what it meant um, for a man to be a spiritual leader in his family. And this elder said something really profound that I still remember. He said, You know, a lot of people will tell you that to be a spiritual leader means to lead family devotions and to make sure that your family prays and and reads the Bible at the dinner table. And that's good, but that's not the main point of it at all. To be a spiritual leader instead is first and foremost to be the first to serve and sacrifice in your family. To be the first to say, I'm sorry. To be the first to say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? To be the first to give up my rights, my privileges, my prerogatives. That is spiritual leadership. Jesus style. And so men, when the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ gets hold of a family, husbands love their wives until it hurts. Are you up for the challenge? Paul gives us two pictures to help us here and to drive home his point. The first is a picture of Christ marrying his bride, the church. And the second, we saw some beautiful pictures of wedding this evening, which get us into that space. The second is a picture of a man and his body. So let's take a look at those two. The first picture, Paul says in verse 25, That husbands are to love their wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when I married Anne, I paid a few hundred bucks for a wedding license and for a ring and um, tuxes for myself and my groomsmen. I think I also paid for the honeymoon. In Paul's day, when a young man um, was marrying a woman, he would pay a girl's father, typically a substantial sum of money as a bride price. But here Paul reminds us that Jesus paid far more than that for his bride. Jesus loved us so much that he paid with his very life. And Paul says, husbands, this is how you are to treat your wives. Then Paul explains that through Christ's death, Christ did three things for his bride. A, he made her holy, verse 26. B, also in verse 26, he cleansed her by washing. And C, he presented her to himself in all of her glory, verse 27. So A, he made her holy. That means he set her apart as his own. That's what happens at a wedding. A bride and a groom each set themselves apart for the other. Um, A bride is no longer available to other men, but, but has entered into a sacred union with her husband. And the husband, the groom, has done the same for his bride. And by his death, Christ said to his bride, he said to us, I love you so much. I'm going to die 
And by my shed blood, I am setting you apart as my own. B, Christ also cleansed his bride with washing. In ancient times, bathing was infrequent due to the lack of warm water. But a bride's wedding day, you can be sure, was definitely a day when she got a bath in preparation for her wedding and her wedding night. And so here Paul gives us a tender picture of Christ himself carefully washing his bride, perhaps through the waters of baptism, maybe they're being alluded to here. He's cleansing and purifying and beautifying his bride for her wedding day. So that at the wedding ceremony, see, he can present her to himself. How? Without spot or wrinkle or any such imperfection, but in all of her glory. The bride is gorgeous. Her skin is flawless, no blemishes, no wrinkles, but but smooth as silk and radiant. And that is what Christ is doing for us now. He's in the process of, of cleaning us up, of beautifying us, so that one day when He returns, He can present us to Himself perfect and holy and glorious and beautiful. And so husbands, Paul says, in the same way, treat your wives. Now this isn't some home improvement project, whereas men, we're supposed to fix our wives. And we're supposed to harp on them about all their sins and failures and say, why can't you get it together? I mean, remember, Jesus is our example. Jesus doesn't control us, does he? He doesn't guilt us. He doesn't pressure us or manipulate us into changing, does he? Often he's so quiet, we, we can forget that he's there. He's gently waiting and wooing. No, Jesus' approach is to lay down his life for us. And then he, he patiently and tenderly nudges us, giving us lots of room and lots of time until we come to aspire toward maturity and beauty. And, and we take his hand and he leads us in that direction. And so we as husbands are to love our wives so well and, and to make them feel so cherished and, and secure that our unconditional love hopefully motivates our wives to grow and to blossom at their own pace in their character and in their spiritual maturity. Joni Erickson Tata, who um, she's well known, she was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teenager, and she describes very well her experience of this kind of love on her wedding day. She writes, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to lift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown, which didn't fit very well. Then as I was wheeled into the church, I glanced down and I noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress and I'd left a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands uh, couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center in my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine. I certainly didn't feel like the perfect, uh, picture-perfect bride from a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew at the back of the church to catch a glimpse of Kent in front. Ken. There he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed, and suddenly I couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. 
The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. Men, our challenge is to make our wives feel like that bride regularly. Because that's how she'll be motivated to grow spiritually. The second picture Paul gives husbands of how they're to love their wives is the image of a man and his body. Paul points out here, of course, that no one ever hated his body. Now, it's true today that that lots of people say they hate their bodies, right? But what they really mean is they hate the way their bodies look. We may not like our body's shape. We may not like our skin, but we love our bodies. I mean, think of all the money we spend on our bodies. Uh, Fashion, good food, uh, medical care and insurance. We spend a lot of money on that. Uh, Exercise, diet, cosmetics, hairstyles, and this week, lots of suntan lotion. We can't help but love our bodies because they're part of ourselves. And Paul says... Husbands, this is the way you're to care for your wife. She is your body. When you care for her, you're taking care of yourself. Because the two of you are one flesh, whether you realize it or not. Now, Paul isn't being deeply theological here. He's just being plain pragmatic, I think. He's saying, come on, guys, think about it. You and she are deeply and mysteriously connected. When when you hurt and neglect your wife, you you only wind up hurting yourself. And when you love your wife, you love yourself. You know, happy wife, happy husband, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Christian comedian Ken Davis discovered this one day. He recounts that for the first 15, he says, uh, for the first 15 years of my marriage, I was a terrible husband. Diane held down a full-time job, became my secretary, mothered our daughters, and waited on me hand and foot without ever demanding that I lift a finger to help. I loved my wife very much, but I hadn't yet learned how to show my love. I had a lesson to learn, and God used a vacuum cleaner to teach it. I learned many things about vacuuming one day. First, I learned that our cat was terrified of vacuum cleaners. That kept me entertained for about an hour. Then I realized as I vacuumed in one direction, a stripe would appear. Going in the opposite direction would create a stripe of a different shade. Entranced, I striped the whole room. Then I went crossways, creating a checkerboard pattern. I got so carried away, I dusted the furniture and straightened the entire house. Afterwards, I was once again embedded in the easy chair, working on a crossword puzzle, when Diane came home. She struggled through the door with a bag of groceries under each arm. She kicked the door shut with one foot, and then she took in the house with an expert glance. Her mouth dropped open. Slowly, the bag slipped from her grasp and dropped to the floor. Who did this, she asked. I did, I said. Without warning, she attacked. Diving on me before I could get off the chair, she smothered me with kisses and hugs showering gratitude on me for helping her. The kisses grew more passionate. We broke the chair. That's the only thing people remember from this sermon. Okay. Well, Anne and I 
in our marriage have experienced two different kinds of cycle in our relationship. One cycle begins when I slip into lazy husband syndrome. And I see how much I can get away with not doing to help around the house and with the kids. And this forces Anne into a corner. She can do all the work herself and get resentful, or she can ask me to help. But if she asks me to help, I might hesitate or complain about how hard I've been working and how I need a break. And then she feels bad, or she might feel upset because she's been working really hard too. And then I might get upset that she's upset. (laughs) You be quiet, Jonathan. (laughs) I'm telling the story my way. (laughs) So so I'm upset because here I am minding my own business. I'm trying to just have some downtime and she's mad at me because I don't want to help her. And you can see where this is going. And, And by the time the fight is over, I, for one, end up feeling miserable like a man who doesn't take care of his own body. The other cycle in our marriage begins when I go out of my way to be proactive. I don't wait to be asked. I look for chances to pitch in and to help Anne, to to change a diaper, to fix something that's broken, to clean up a mess, even if I'm tired, even if I feel like I need a break. And when I do this, Anne feels supported, she feels appreciated, she feels cared about, she's happier, she feels more affection for me. She makes me want to help even more when she treats me that way. And so we get into a positive cycle, and and I feel great, like a man who takes good care of his own body. That's what Jesus promised us, right? The man who loses his life will find it. We'll find it. As we saw Monday night, this kind of sacrificial service is how we're made alive with Christ. And it's what it means to reign with Christ in the heavenly realms. And as we saw last night, this kind of sacrificial service is how we manage to actually be one new humanity. It's how we maintain the unity of the Spirit, despite how different we are. And all of that becomes possible when, like Christ, men take the lead in laying down our lives in loving surface. That's how our families become the good news that God is bringing into the world. That's how it gets modeled for our kids as they grow up. So they're not just book smart, and they're not just Bible smart, but so that they're Jesus smart. And that is good news for homeschoolers. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming and doing everything I'm talking about, we're reading about tonight, and so much more. Thank you for setting the example. And the spirit within us rises to this message, and we know it's true, and yet there's a part of us that just thinks it's crazy and dead wrong, and we can shrink back in fear. And I pray that that you would continue to work in our hearts and help us to take the next step, to take another big step in the direction of living out the good news. For husbands, may it be 
in the way they learn to love their wives the way you love your church. In Jesus' name, amen.